0: Let me spit that out, water is a profitable investment field, private money can do great things, and when rightfully oriented, it's a sure win-win. And yes, I know, affirming that from downtown Manhattan can awaken ghosts from a time when all of the above was proven wrong. New York has long been infamous for being a city that had everything but water. From its early Dutch times to its British history all the way to its first 60 years of American independence, Big Apple didn't have any reliable source to draw its water from. And while Philadelphia would strive as a result of a collective effort to bring pure and wholesome water into everyone's home, New York fell victim to some high elites' greed, biased policy and misuse of capital. That would hamper the city's effort to get water, indirectly cost millions in devastating fires, and significantly impact its population several times through water-based epidemics. I've already shortly mentioned the culprits in the previous chapter, Aaron Burr, Alexander Hamilton, and a bunch of their acquaintances.
1: In the Electric City!
0: Just before the turn of the 19th century, they created the Manhattan Company, a group with broad rights and few obligations. And I never got caught, neither. Under the false nose of supplying the city with pure and wholesome water, it leveraged a surplus capital close, which indeed allowed it to become a bank. Over the decades of its water business, the Manhattan company barely crossed financial break even, which was already a significant accomplishment as they had no real durable access to a water source. Making money selling water without water? That was possible with a simple trick, not investing in a water network either. Who needs that? The rest is banking history. And it was proven to be incredibly profitable. Bottom line, it's only when New York decided to make the water topic a public one again that it finally got its first safe water deliveries from the Croton watershed. As that proved that nothing profitable can result from the involvement of private capital in water, thankfully, not at all. Had the Manhattan Company not been created by senators, general attorneys, and future vice presidents, it would probably not have been able to distort policies thus far.
1: Sorry. Not sorry.
0: The real lesson to remember here is that water economics and water policies are a powerful duo that has to work hand in hand. The analogy or the metaphor would be a race car. If you're trying to develop the fastest race car, you want to put an engine
1: in it that is of immense. Horsepower. That's American industry, that's
0: the the private sector. The government's role is the steering wheel, the tires, and that which sits around it. So, how do you develop that immense horsepower? Actually, it starts with finding the right blend. Something we'll cover in just a minute after I remind you that if you like what you see today, you should probably consider subscribing to this channel. Indeed, this video is the second chapter of a five step journey you probably don't want to miss out on the next steps. Or do you? I think not! When you think of it, if handled right, tap water has a strong value proposition. Tap water is clean, reliable, healthy, on
2: demand, and it has a profound price differential, less than one penny a gallon versus $5 a gallon. So if the American water utility industry can make the marketing value proposition pitch, that you can trust your tap, that it's going to be reliable, it's always going to be healthy and of high quality,
0: it will win the battle. You know that. In marketing terms, a strong value proposition leads to a good market share, great service, happy customers, and ultimately, profit. Now, that path isn't always so straightforward. You really have to handle water rights. And to do so, you need to rightfully invest twice. First, by laying down the appropriated infrastructure. In most US cases, this was done a while ago, yet appropriately revamping that said infrastructure is equally important. And when infrastructure doesn't exist yet, other approaches might be more effective, but that's a story I'll keep for later. The problem is that this means a lot of money to sink in upfront, especially when you're a relatively small community. The trap, though, is that underinvesting ultimately results in even higher costs, so counterintuitively, no one should be rich enough to go cheap. Indeed that's the second investment, allocating reasonable operating costs to run your system over time efficiently. What's the secret? Well, it's a compound of maintenance effort and infrastructure management. As a result, the key to success in that endeavor is a matter of scale. It would be best if you had deep pockets up front and the soundest know-how all the way after that. Two characteristics that appeal to the private sector. Private money's involvement in water isn't all new in the US. If by the volume 88% of the population is served by public systems, when it comes to number of actual systems, about 22,000 or about 44% are privately owned. Indeed, a good portion of these private water utilities are on the smaller end or even operated as a side business of a different industry. And for long, it had consequences.
2: The water infrastructure crisis, it's not looming, it's already here. Over and over again, I've seen lead in the drinking water, serving daycares. I've seen receiving water bodies, that are biologically dead. You know, I've seen places with intermittent water service or water service that they can't even use their laundry because there's so much iron manganese in the system, right? So all of that is happening right now. After being exposed to that multiple times, I realized there's got to be a private solution to this very public problem. This private sector's involvement would take the shape of central
0: states water resources a company Josiah Fox created in 2014.
2: Last year, there were 208 M&A water utility transactions. We were 80 of those. We're really focused on rolling up these small systems and the states we're in, we've gone to states with the highest amount of fragmentation, the most amount of small systems and the highest amount of regulatory non-compliance. So we're trying to solve a problem that obviously exists in every state we're in. Interestingly, CSWR has
0: been regularly topping the M&A leaderboard in the number of deals in the year, but never in the number of connections or customers. There's a simple reason. The company focuses on small, distressed, non-compliant plants. That's actually where the flip is the most effective. It enables a consolidator to unlock a scale effect among a scattered cluster of systems, and spoiler alerts we'll see in the next chapter how that approach may do well in the long run. And as it takes a losing situation, bad water in the wrong hands, to turn it into a win-win, good water at a profit, it sounds like a no-brainer positive move. I, I see this as an absolute win. So for the 15 person already private utilities, there's a clear success path in realizing Seth Siegel's recommendation, consolidating them into distributed giants, powered by private money. But what about the other 85%? Because as we know in in the US, 85% of the industry is publicly held utility companies. The US EPA estimates that they will need to invest $470 billion in the next 20 years to keep the water quality afloat. And it might be more. The US probably needs a trillion dollars of infrastructure and water. Needless to say, public investment programs don't match these numbers. Oh no shit, Sherlock. In 2021, the Biden-Harris administration announced the unlocking of $111 billion. That was historic, unprecedented, yet far from being enough. That can't be done by governments alone. And with the advent of infrastructure funds, with the focus now in the investment community on water, I think it's a nice convergence of capital technology and need will really accelerate the growth of the industry, the focus on the sector. Succeeding in that endeavor may require breaking a taboo in the US. Around the world, we find that it is more market-driven. And we are okay with private ownership of water utilities. UK, Manila, you just go around the world. US, I think we're somewhat afraid to attack that issue. A way forward would be about finding the right blend of private and public capital or said differently, it will be about private-public partnerships.
1: I think we're going to be friends. And when I'm with friends, I like to have
0: fun, 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 Will these PPP players still be
2: the same as the private consolidators? You know, obviously we're a privatization play, so we're a pure play water and wastewater utility, investor-owned utility. We'll see if that gets traction because these small municipalities don't have the cash flows to do the improvements that are necessary. So, can there be a approachment, engagement of the private sector, whether the municipality still owns the assets? That's yet to be determined.
0: I'm just a mailman here, but if CSWR was to enter this new extension of the game it would get backing from its current investor. We're investing primarily in the private piece of that, but we think that private capital has a role to play across the industry. I'm glad you came along, partner. But aside from private consolidators, that new approach will also require the involvement of new players. We are big believers and proponents of
1: that public-private partnership because it's more than just the financial capital. It's aligning objectives and measurements of success for a community beyond purely the financial metric. Multifaceted partners have skin in the game together to drive success. I think that it also reduces oftentimes the noise, the conflict that is based upon
0: legacy or the past rather than fact. And I think it can galvanize. This partnership can come in many shapes, but the conventional approach is to have a private company financing upfront an infrastructure asset against a revenue-based contract that repays it over time, typically 15 to 30 years. Before the popularization of PPPs, a public body designed a new water infrastructure, with private companies then bidding on it, building it, and transferring it. But according to public works financing research, adopting design-build approaches, where private companies were allowed to submit their own designs, enabled the US water sector to save 39% on capital. And adding a third initial to the acronym with Design, Build, Operate, enabled a further 26% reduction in lifecycle costs. Hence, when a public body enters in a private-public partnership, it unlocks the benefits of this private sector's involvement, minus the profits the private company is planning over the contract. This is why even the United Nations have been promoting the PPP approach, assuming it would follow some best practices, such as the fair sharing of risks and rewards, aka neither extreme risk transfer nor extreme profits.
2: What you have to begin to do is look at some of these vehicles, the federal funding vehicles, but look at private equity as a source as well to get consistent rates, get rates that's probably going to be consistent and level out versus the increased regressive rates that you're going to see to fix an old aging system.
0: Another perk of the PPP approach is that a municipality avoids cashing out upfront, which alleviates the burden on mayors.
1: Politicians are doing an amazing job, but politicians are similar to CEOs. They're only appointed for a short period of time. So with that in mind, do they make the investment appropriately to get the return, particularly if it's in a pipe that no one can see? I think something around that has to change. Around fines and persecutions, we don't want industry to slow down and we don't want industry to be scared of making it a front step forward, but we need to penalise those that are doing it in a reckless manner. So a reckless manner
0: is not thinking about the community or the people that they serve. Now let's face it, PPPs also come with a bad rap. The mechanism may have been overused in the 1990s on projects that were probably too broad and left a lot of space for the reckless manners James alluded to.
1: There are many, many, many examples of success of this around the world. Far more successes by a factor of exponentially than any failures along the way. It doesn't mean it's always perfect, but it has proven itself
0: to be a significant alternative. These successes have led PPPs to jump by a 146% increase between 2020 and 2021 in the water and sanitation sector worldwide, another sign that the tool, when used right, is a clear asset in water management's toolbox. Now, as promising as the private consolidation and the private-public partnership paths may be, they won't solve the world alone. Public-private partnership
1: has proven itself to be a significant alternative. It's not the only alternative for funding, but it is one.
0: There have always been private-public partnerships, but I think right now, due to the systematic issues that climate change and water pose, these solutions can't
2: grow in isolation.
0: This is where a third mechanism comes into play, government funding. The second in my view is much more federal money, whether it be in the US, whether it be in Europe, whether it be in China,
1: where there's large infrastructure funding discussions happening, obviously I may not be objective, but when I look at the return on investment, both economically and socially, of redirecting more of those dollars to water infrastructure as a basic human right to have access to it, and the impact it has on economic value of businesses when they're facing water stress, I don't believe that we're putting enough money that's
0: already been approved in the overall infrastructure packages. Not enough that money is being directed towards water. This speaks to the dichotomy I was alluding to earlier. We need $1 trillion and we get a historic yet insufficient $111 billion. But why should more money come from governments when I demonstrated earlier that investing in water was... Profitable? Why wouldn't infrastructure funds foot the bill? It's actually a matter of wrong pockets. We have a wrong pockets problem, what economists would call this wrong pockets problem. You know, the the societal benefits don't accrue to the same folks that would necessarily make the investment to solve the problem. And in the US, in, in most cases, that's either municipalities leveraging federal funds as loans or forgivable grants that they have to prove their eligibility for, or it's private water companies who are economically disincentivized because of this wrong pockets problem from extending these systems. On the other end, more state money would push us into the next challenge. Federal infrastructure or inflation regulation plans naturally call for large projects when the
2: appropriate scale might be different. How are we going to efficiently and equitably deploy these funds. And no doubt, big infrastructure is important. But as I've seen, being in the weeds for the past six years, doing grassroots water projects in Flint, Michigan, Navajo Nation, Tanzania, you really got to get on the ground and understand the local context. In short,
0: we will need more federal funding, as that's the level where the windfalls will be collected. But we then also need the entire value chain to transfer as much power as possible from the engine to the wheels. It's going to take a coordinated response, it's gonna take federal investment, understanding that when we do make that investment, it's gonna achieve an incredible economic return for us. But it is the biggest investment in history And I think we would all do well to keep our eyes on the way that investment is getting pushed out the door. That way, we will avoid the famous pitfall Reinhard Hübner expressed on my podcast microphone. Too much stupid money is chasing too little good targets.
1: You're gonna have to dig it up a lot better than that.
0: But before we wrap up this chapter, we have to address one more pocket of money. We've seen how private money can do well in consolidating private assets, how private money, technology, and know how can join forces with public bodies to build successful partnerships, and how eventually, Eventually, we'll need more federal investment. Yet there is a fast track to efficiency that can put the rollout of these solutions on steroids. Philanthropic capital. Philanthropy has that incredible feature. It is meant to be lost. Yet I'd bet donors wouldn't complain if that money were to achieve a maximized impact. And that's where players like Merton Capital Partners play a new role. We're basically creating deals where philanthropy can be invested with later stage private companies that can take in a lot of capital that is inexpensive capital and that allows them to do things with much greater impact. The keyword here is blend. A fraction of sunk philanthropic capital in the broader blend of for-profit private money and public funds. Can make a deal profitable, hence getting all the parties to agree on it. Two water areas Merton has been looking into so far are first, the 5,000 abandoned water utilities that ran out of money and contributed to the 44 million Americans that got exposed to Safe Drinking Water Act violations, and second, the coastal wastewater treatment plants, or rather, the absence of it. With three or four hundred million of philanthropy, you can probably increase the wastewater capacity in South Florida to bring back the reefs and have an explosion of seagrass that is incredible. For that to happen there is a last hurdle to overcome. It's tough to find philanthropists who want to give to water infrastructure because they don't know about the problems and they always see that well that's a government issue. So this time it boils down to spreading the right messages and educating the general public about the water challenges. Something we'll cover in chapter four. Thank you! For now, you shall go on and watch this video to find out how to establish the right level and scale to tackle our broken pipes problem, now that we hopefully covered how we will solve water's broken economics. And if you didn't know we had a broken economics and a broken pipes problem, you probably skipped chapter 1 in this journey, so I'll put it right here for you to fix that gap, and I'll see you next time.